Hi, I am Tingan, and this is the Parents in Tech Podcast. Welcome to Season 2, where we interview dads who are technology company leaders based in Southeast Asia. After hearing from moms in Season 1, now it's time to speak to dads who are raising kids while striving in their careers. Let's find out the stories, challenges, and advice they have for us. In this episode, we speak to Samuel, CEO of Rainmaking Asia-Pacific Venture Studio. Samuel was born and raised in the UK and started his career as a lawyer before moving to Singapore and building his career across multiple startups and new ventures. In 2016, he founded the Rainmaking APEC Venture Studio and also launched Startup Bootcamp, a startup accelerator across Southeast Asia, Japan, and South Korea. Samuel has two daughters, aged three and one. Hey Samuel, welcome to Parents in Tech. To begin with, could you tell us a bit more about your family? Absolutely. I'm very happy to do so. And I should say thank you for hosting me here. Delighted to be here and to be speaking to you about it today. So my family, I guess the starting point is Kazla, who's my wife. I would call her my MVP. You might quickly realize I default to sports analogies and I'm a big basketball playing family. Okay, sorry, Samuel. MVP can be two things. Most valuable player <laughs> or minimum viable product. So <laughs> for clarification. I didn't even think about that, but think how this is going to sound to my wife. Yeah, yeah. So my wife, Kasler, she's my MVP. And then at some point, we're going to upgrade to the enterprise version. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that is categorically and absolutely not what I meant by MVP. So I'm talking about most valuable player. And like I was saying, basketball is a really great example to sort of hang it on in basketball. If you have a championship team, you will have an elite group of players. You will have a bunch of winners and they will trust each other and they will play well together. You will have a bunch of role players who do specific things really well. And you will have a great supportive back office and probably an innovative and imaginative coach calling the shots. But almost always, not always, but almost always, those elite championship teams, they do have this genuine cut above superstar, the MVP, the Michael Jordans of this world, the Steph Currys of this world, the Kevin Durant's. And for me, that's Kasla. She is the unflinchingly supportive driver of not just me, but also of our family. So before I come to my children, I should 100% talk about her. And not just that, but she's beautiful and she's funny and she's full of energy. And she's the cushion that allows me to be who I am. Because the reality is I'm an introvert, pretty much masquerading as an extrovert. And what that means is that when I'm masquerading as an extrovert and I'm done doing that for a period of time, I am wiped Mm. and I'm like an iPhone with no battery. (laughs) What that leads to is a bit of up, down in energy levels and therefore up, down in output. And when I'm in a down, she is the one that keeps our family moving. So that's my wife, Kasla. And then I have two wonderful daughters. So Sienna will be three soon. She is adventurous and she is mischievous and... She's super proud and she's loving and she's full of life. And I spend a lot of time with her. We like to swim. She loves swimming at the moment. She comes on my paddleboard with me and sits on the front. She asked to do acro yoga. I don't think she's quite realized yet that daddy doesn't actually know how to do acro yoga, but he can lie on the floor and hold his hands up and, and she can stand on them. So we do that sometimes. And she loves music. So we spend a lot of time singing songs and dancing around. And then I have our youngest is Bo. And she is one, recently one. 
and she is affectionate and she is full of life as well. And she is now an enormous explorer. That's always the way, right? At that particular age, when they start to figure out what they can do with their body, when they start to figure out they can walk and then they can run and then they can climb. And then all of a sudden your world comes crashing down because it's <laughs> constantly falling off things and climbing up things they're not supposed to be on. And that's the stage that she's at at the moment. But that's the family. Yeah, we start there. That's a beautiful family. So, so much to unpack over there. Brad Samuel, maybe let's start off first with how did you meet your wife? So we met playing tennis. So my wife is very good at tennis. Mm. It's sort of her family sport that she's always played. And I am not very good at tennis, but I like sport. And so I will dabble in most things. And a friend of mine who I'd played tennis with once or twice had a doubles game. And my wife was playing in the doubles game one morning for work. This is in the UK. This is in London. And somebody dropped out. They needed somebody short notice. So it's probably the only reason I would get the call up because my standard was not quite there for the rest of them. <laughs> but he gave me a call, said, can you fill in? We need somebody for the doubles game. I went along and on the other team was Kasla, my now wife. And actually she was serving to me. And I remember that the first game that she served to me, I only got one of those balls back over the net. So that shows <laughs> the disparity between the two. And I was thinking, she's wonderful, but she clearly won't be interested in me after that performance. And so I had to put it back onto terms that I was more comfortable with. So I found out that she was actually a captain of a mixed netball team. And so I put my hand up and said, oh yeah, netball, that's a lot like basketball. I can come and play on that team. And fortunately, I was therefore a much stronger contributor to that team. And so hopefully I managed to reopen the door and it seems like I did. So that's how we met playing tennis and then playing netball, mixed netball. And it went from there. That's fascinating. Meeting and bonding through sports. So after you got together, how did children or when did children come into the picture in terms of the discussions, the conversations about that? How many children went to have it? I'm sure all these are big conversations. Maybe shed some light behind some of those. Uh, it's funny because the very honest answer is when did we first talk about having children? It was on the first date. Okay. And not necessarily talking about having children together, but I think children have always been an aspiration for both of us. Mm. So I come from a family of four children. And for me, it's always been a sort of accepted mental frame that when I'm older, I just want to have a child. I'll probably want to have multiple children. Mm. I guess that's just the status quo that I've grown up in. Kaza comes from a similar place of having always wanted to have a family. And so it was something that we talked about as an aspiration, but we didn't talk about specifically necessarily as something that we were going to do together until a, a bit later. I don't think we really ever talked about when. Hmm. It was more over a period of time. It was well understood that we both wanted to do that. And at some point in time, we would. Yeah, there was no sort of master plan. This is how we must fit it into our life. I guess there was some level of thought around. I've always thought that when my children are 18, it would be nice if when they're sort of fully grown and approaching sort of peak athletic prowess, it would be nice for me to still be able to play with them. Absolutely. So, I mean, it'd be nice to be able to play tennis with them and be able to contribute. It'd be nice to be able to play basketball with them and be able to contribute. Yep. There was something around don't leave it too late, but not much more than that. Yeah, interesting. So when you mentioned about coaching your children tennis, almost what comes to my mind is so you will coach them the basics, the beginner and the intermediate, and then to get advanced to their mum for the advanced. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's exactly so right. So they got a the whole spectrum covered. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm okay with them now. Sienna's going to be three soon. Yeah. And I'm okay with coaching her now, but I think I've only got a couple more years before she needs to graduate to somebody a bit stronger than me. <laughs> nice. But maybe about the number of children. That's interesting. Because I hear you that you want multiple. In fact, for you, do you have a number in mind? And was that sort of aligned right from the start with your wife? Or was there some form of 
alignment needed along the way? I guess no alignment needed so far. Let's see what happens in the future. Okay. It was easy enough to say, do we both want to have a child? Yes. Okay. Okay. Do we both want to have a second child? Yes. Okay. And I think the reality is that we're so incredibly fortunate mm-hmm. to have two children. That's something that I think it's only as we've got to a stage in life where we have started thinking about and then having children that you realize beyond the somewhat banal statement of every child is a blessing. And it's totally true. But beyond that, you really, truly realize what that means when you start contemplating it, when you start having it, because it's only then that you realize how difficult it is for some people and how fortunate you are if you are able to have children. So I think what has maybe changed in my mental frame is that Mm. when I was younger, I was living in a future reality that, yeah, sure, I'm going to have loads of children because I wasn't aware of the reality of how difficult it can be and how fortunate you are to be able to do that. So how my mental frame has shifted a little bit now is we're so blessed and fortunate to have these two wonderful people in our life. And if we never had any more children, then there's no downside there. And who knows? Who knows what the future holds? Right now, we have two, three years and under. I'm not sure I can throw somebody else into the mix right now. And the reason for that is simply that how can I contribute to those two in the way that I want to and to my wife, Kazza, in the way that I want to and to everybody else in my life that I want to contribute to? Somebody said to me the other day, and I liked it, I'm not Shiva. And I think that this is very much applicable to this scenario that I'm not. And I only have so many hands and so much time. And I want to engage deeply with the family that I already have. And I think it's responsible, therefore, to think about when and how we might add others to the party if we want to do so. Absolutely. And I completely understand and identify with that as someone who has a 16-month-old daughter too. You have your work, you have your wife, you have your kid. It's already so many things and I think that's something that's always top of mind. So Samuel, I have to ask you, in terms of balancing and figuring out how to manage all of this, being present for each and every one of them, what are some of the changes that you had to make in the past three years since you became a dad? A big one, I think, is the way that I work Mm. and when I work and how I work. And the reality there is that my style has always been calendar-based. So I will assess what I seek to achieve and the time that is available to me, and I will prioritize and I will schedule. And a good day for me has always been if I have a back-to-back calendar, not with meetings, but with some of them might be meetings, but with things that I'm seeking to do, whether that's thinking time or whether that's exercise time or whether that's actioning X, Y, and Z task time, I have a back-to-back calendar that I stick to. Mm -hmm. So 30 minutes for this, do it, followed by one minute, one hour for this, do it. That's because that's when I'm making progress because I prioritize the right things to focus on. And the big learning post having children is that goes totally out of the window. It's not possible to work on that basis when you have young children. So for me, I start work pretty early and that's because that's when I do my best work. And that's when I like to do my deep thought and my thinking, my inspiration. And the reality is that if I'm in my office at five o'clock and I've got a two hour block to think deeply about something and at quarter past five, one of my children starts going, daddy, (laughs) then it's game over. (laughs) You don't go, it's not like a coffee machine that you walk in and flick the switch and turn it off that's game over for the next hour. And then the knock-on effect, if you're trying to get through various different things and if you have various different responsibilities, is that as soon as one thing slips, of course, everything else slips. And the reality there is that you end up constantly showing up, unless you mitigate this, you end up constantly showing up to stuff underprepared. 
and you end up constantly somewhat delivering less than you might seek to deliver or aspire to deliver to the people that you work with. And so that's a really important learning is to think about how to prioritize time and to think about how to carve out the space to do the things that you want to do. And by the things that you want to do, I include parenting. Like if you've made a choice to have children, then it's something that you want to do. And so you need to carve out the space to do that well. And that means creating time for your children, but it also means creating time away from your children such that you can mindfully recharge to be on top form when you are back with your children. And the same is true for work, creating time for your work, but also being away from your work so that you can mindfully recharge for when you're back working. And I think it's a challenge. And I think it is incredibly important that you work with a really trusting group Mm. to allow you to do that because that's the trust that you would expect to see in your family and that you would hope to see from those close to you. And it's also trust that is needed in the workplace. So I guess that's my biggest learning is rethinking how I work. Absolutely. And I could completely identify with that, right? You have a schedule, you're organized about it. And I think especially even before you have children, that's something that you can communicate with a partner. Saying that I have certain things on, I need to get things done. And more often than not, they're understandable. But when it comes to having young children, if they cry, if they yell, if they want your attention, there's no such thing as a calendar for it. And you just got to deal with it. So following on that, how do you protect these deep work blocks of time? where you really just got to sit down, get things done, especially in this day and age where we are all working from home. How do you carve out that protected time? So I think a significant part of that is trust and compromise with my wife. Mm. And then what I mean specifically around that is I work in the morning and she looks after the children in the morning. Got it. So when somebody wakes up and cries and screams or whatever it might be, then she will deal with it. In the afternoon and the early evening, it's vice versa. So that's really when she does her deep work and I'm responsible for that. The reality of the world in which we are living and what we are seeking to do on the professional front means that it's never quite so clean cut and easy as that. But that is the way we try to do it as a partnership is to create the space and time for each other to work in the way that we work, which is different. The way that I work is different to the way that my wife works. And I think you know that pre-children but you only truly understand what it means to empathetically respond to that post-children. Because before you have children, yes, we work differently, but the friction doesn't arise. When post-children, now you're overlapping your ways of working in a much more pressurized environment and the friction does arise. So that's one way to attempt to mitigate is to really be empathetic to how each other work as a partnership and to structure your schedule and your commitment to parenting um, to enable you to do that. And then the other one is very similar but is with the people that you work with. So to have the trust and to have the support of the leadership team that I work with in APAC and the people on my team, and to get that then, or to enjoy that, it's important that everybody is cognizant of everybody's different needs and everybody is cognizant of everybody's different ways of working and everybody is cognizant of the culture that you are seeking to create. Like we, in our company, we want a culture where people can be not just parents, but can be high-performing parents Hmm. and we want a culture therefore where people can be deeply engaged with what they need to be engaged with outside of work and it's bizarre because i'm now talking about it as inside work and outside work when one of my strongest beliefs is having to some extent no disconnect between personal and professional life so i don't believe in two faces one for the workplace and one for home and i believe that to be genuinely phenomenal at what you're seeking to do then you need to be entirely authentic with the people that you work with and that creates trust so there's something around being open and honest and real with the challenges that one is facing 
as a parent. And of course, those challenges will change throughout the life of your children and when they're at different ages. But creating that space and that trust amongst your group such that people will support you to have deep time in other parts of your day or your week, or people will support you to pick up your slack. The amount of slack that I have created that others have picked up for me in the last couple of years is enormous. And I think that hopefully the reason that we collaboratively respond to that and people pick up the slack is because I do the same for them with the things that are going on in their life. And I think that's really important. But it comes from a place of trust and a place of wanting each other to succeed. So myself and my wife, we have total trust and we want each other to win. And I don't think always in the workplace that's the same. But it's really important to me that in our workplace, then our leadership team and the rest of everybody in the group has trust in each other, but wants each other to win. So we want everybody individually to win and we want us collectively to win. And so we create the support and the empathy to enable that. So much to unpack over there, but maybe let's dial back. You mentioned there was this part where there were differences, of course, between you and your wife in terms of working styles, parenting styles, and that really came up when children came into the picture. So could you humor us with perhaps what a story or an area that there was friction and how both of you went about overcoming it? One that pops to mind, I find very funny, which is not really about working styles. It's about parenting styles. Okay. Maybe I'll start there. So our style is, who knows, because I'm biased and blinkered with how I might characterize our own style, but we don't raise our voices and we don't shout at our children. And I have shouted at my eldest child twice in her life. And I remember them so specifically, partly because they're infrequent, but partly because of the reaction when Mm. I have them. And the first one was when our youngest child, Bo, was maybe three months old or something like that. As you'll know, then when children at that age, when they're sort of lying on their front and they stick their arms out and they've got their legs and they're lying on their tummy with their head up and and sort of looking around, sort of Superman pose. And she was doing that on the floor. And and I was, I think, making coffee on the kitchen bench overlooking the the living area. Mm -hmm. My wife was to the side of the room doing something, getting ready for work or something like that. And our daughter, Sienna, was sitting on the floor just in front of Bo, sort of looking at her doing that and enjoying it and just taking it in, observing and I think eating some breakfast or something. And I was just watching that and thinking, oh, that's nice, the two children together. And then out of nowhere, Sienna sort of two foot drop kicked Bo in the face (laughs) and experimenting with pushing the boundaries in the same way that children sort of push each other down and grab each other and pull them and see what's doable here, what's possible, what's the scope of my body and my strength and all (laughs) these different things. So she did that. And of course, that was for me horrifying. And in the moment I was why is she doing that? I don't want my child doing that. But at the same time, what about Bo? Is she okay? She's just been kicked in the face. So my reaction was to shout loudly across the room, you do not do that. And Sienna spun round and my wife, Carol, on hearing the cry, sort of spun to look at the children to see what must have happened. And then you could see the cogs turning. She stopped and looked back at me and said, you do not shout at my children. (laughs) To your question, I guess it's that in the moment, very different parenting styles. And we would say actually that our parenting style is certainly not the same, but is built on many of the same values. So broadly, the way that we parent is very similar. And we also believe in a sort of united face. So we believe that if one person is saying one thing, it is not right for the other parent to contradict that in the moment at least and so it was interesting to see that there is something that goes too far so shouting for my wife 
pushed it too far, right. no matter what had happened. And it's really great, actually, because I've learned from my wife that that was my instinctive reaction. In reality, you can't always change what you do on instinct in a moment. What I would hope to do in the future is actually not. And I think these days when similar things happen, then I don't because you learn by failing. It's in the same way that when I was younger, I went diving and I lost my regulator and I inhaled a load of water and I would never do that again. So now I would always pick up my second regulator, which I didn't do when I was young and when I was learning to dive because it was just in the moment, the first experience. And I think it's the same thing that you learn by doing. And we learned the disparity in our parenting style and then converged on where we wanted to be by going through that experience. Got it. Wow. Thanks for sharing that story. And so interesting. So on that topic also about discipline, because your older daughter, Sienna, she's three, starting to be more aware, starting to expand her vocabulary and, like you said, push the boundaries. What does discipline look like in your family? <laughs> it looks like telling daddy what he's not allowed to do. <laughs> <laughs> I think we tried to role model what we believe is the strongest behaviors that we would hope our child will be influenced by. And we seek to give them the room to experiment and learn how they should act such that it's most beneficial for themselves and for the people around them. We give them the freedom to explore mm. and we're ready to sort of put the guardrails up. Okay. And when we put the guardrails up, we try not to say, you should not do this. Mm. And we try not to say, you are not allowed to do this. We try to talk to why the action that you're taking impacts other people. Mm. And a good example is, with the two young children, Sienna is much bigger and stronger than Bo. Yep. So if they both want the same thing, Sienna will get it. She can push Bo out of the way and she can get it. So what we try to then do is to call out how that action has impacted Bo. She's now fall down. She's now right. crying. She's hurt herself. She suffered a frustration and it was caused by you. You don't like it when a frustration is caused by somebody else to you. And we call out examples of where that's happened in the past. Mm -hmm. So for example, we say, you didn't like it that time when somebody shouted at you. You found that scary and you don't see your parents shouting at you. So why are you shouting at Bo or whatever it might be? Yeah. We try to talk through discipline, but I think the answer is we're learning. We're totally learning how to do this like all parents. And I think we'll be learning forever because the first time we have a six-year-old, it will be the first time we have a six-year-old. The first time Absolutely. we have a 12-year-old, it'll be the first time for that. Yeah, definitely. I think that's one of the wonderful things. We grow along with our children. And I like the part about helping them to empathize and understand what they have done wrong instead of adopting a more punitive approach where the children feel bad about it, but they also don't really understand why they feel bad about it. Yeah. Gotcha. Now, Sammy, earlier you also mentioned a bit about high-performing parents. Tell us a bit more. What does a high-performing parent look like from your perspective and how do you enable that today in the workplace? for the teams that you lead? Yeah, so totally subjective, high-performing, very different for very different people. And part of that is to do with what you seek to achieve and part of it is to do with the type of place you work and the type of work that you do. So myself and my wife, we do very different things. So my work is in venture building, uh, creating startups in a studio structure. My wife is a solicitor and she works predominantly on restructuring. And so the sort of what good looks like in those two worlds, there are many differences and I'm sure there are many similarities as well. But what we're seeking to achieve looks quite different. For me, high performing is the fulfillment that comes through unstifling one's potential. That's what I'm seeking to do with my work, is to genuinely unlock whatever potential it is that I have. And that means that I need to work on things that I'm genuinely inspired by. Otherwise, my output will always be X percent less than the ultimate potential, mm. I believe. I need to work with people that I'm inspired by and I need to work with people that I trust in and I need to work with people who are phenomenally good at what they do. I need to work in an environment 
that creates the space and the support structure to allow me to be the best version of myself. And it needs to also create that space and support structure to allow everybody else to be their best versions of themselves. Without that, they won't be truly fulfilled. If they won't be truly fulfilled, then they won't be as supportive as a group as they could otherwise be for me. And so it plays back into me, sure. which is that I won't be as successful and fulfilled as I might like. So how does that manifest? Uh, I think it manifests in three ways. One is I am very concerned with uh, or invest time and thought into who I work with. Hmm. Another one is I'm concerned with and invest time and thought into what type of work it is that I do. And another is I invest time and thought into what is the culture and structure at play in the place where we work. And the best example of that is something that we've talked about a little bit earlier on, which is creating an environment that encourages deep work yep. and encourages people to have the space and the expectation to explore and to think. I think the key thing is to proactively explore rather than to be in a place of reactive response. Yep. What we're trying to do is to create new ventures that inevitably break new ground. We're trying to create stuff that hasn't been done before. And that's really bloody hard. So to do something that hasn't been done before, if that was easy, then everybody would be doing it. Yep. And the reality is that for every time that you try, you might not succeed. And to be able to make a breakthrough, you need incredibly intellectually adept people with a passion for what they're doing, working in an environment that supports them to let the data points and the imagination marinate. And then from that, hopefully be able to create something that is different and is new and is a step forward. It's a genuine breakthrough. And so you need the space to be able to do that. So we like to create a sort of deep work culture. As you can see, this is an interesting juxtaposition because what matters there is space, mental and temporal space. Yes. And to put it very bluntly, what children don't give a shit about is giving you space. hundred <laughs> percent. But I think almost navigating that irony, the juxtaposition of that, it's also where, like you said, if it's easy, everyone would have done it. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, Samuel, I noticed also, you, if I'm not wrong, you were born and raised and you grew up in the UK. What led you and of course your wife to Singapore? How did that happen? When I first started my career, I was a lawyer mm -hmm. and I spent a little bit of time in Singapore a long time ago when I was a corporate lawyer. I spent only about six months here. I was familiar with Singapore because I'd um, spent a bunch of time living here, but I'd also passed through a lot mm. whilst traveling in Southeast Asia and Australasia and various different places. And I loved Singapore from the first time that I came here. So in my mind, Singapore was always a place that I could be and I could spend my time and I could build something. And I'm super excited to do that. Mm -hmm. My wife is also British. Her mum is originally from Hong Kong. So she has some family ties there. And she had spent time back and forth to Hong Kong when she was younger. She never lived abroad. And there was a point in time when we were living in London where she woke up one day and said, I'd like to live abroad and I'd like to live in Asia. Yeah. And I said, great, that suits me down to a T. Um, we can do that. Where do you want to live? And she said, well, I think it's between Singapore and Hong Kong. I mean, how boring. What a standard selection of options. And I said, absolutely, you choose. And she said, well, we can't go to Hong Kong because I've got family there. So we'll have to go for dinner with them every weekend. So <laughs> it'll have to be Singapore. And so here we are. We ended up in Singapore reasonably shortly after that. I mean, I thought it was very much, let's explore that. And over time, then we'll go and do that. But the reality is that she came back from work the next day and said, I've got a job in Singapore. So get your stuff together. And that was that. And that was now about six and a half years ago. 
Wow. And I guess since then, moving over here, raising your kids in this environment, were there any surprises along the way in terms of cultural differences, things that you weren't expecting or perhaps was different from the way you were brought up? Not that smacks me around the face when you ask the question. Okay. Because I think the thing that I've learned the older I've got is that all of my preconceptions about culture and status quo were wrong because they were influenced by an incredibly narrow scope of context. And what I mean specifically by that is growing up in my family with the values that were espoused in that family, then mm. I almost thought that, well, that's how everybody thinks. And you only realize that's not true until you step outside your bubble in, into the, say, the street that you live on. And then you realize actually there's a greater diversity of opinion. But the reality is, in most cases, the street that you live on is a somewhat concentrated belief system and value system. They might be very different, but relative to each other, they're probably closer than the street four miles away. And that's simply to do with demographic and relative affluence and relative access and things like that. So I think I was reasonably fortunate in my childhood to have a reasonable understanding of many different contexts and beliefs and ways of living and thought processes around that based on where I went to school and the fact that I moved around a few schools based on I played a lot of sport and so I played with people from all around the country and then as I sort of got a bit older and left home then I traveled an awful lot so I think that the context that I had grew the sort of diameter of my circle expanded and I think I was very fortunate that between the ages of probably about 18 and about 28, I think the, the expansion was exponential. Mm. And so what that meant was there was no longer almost a status quo or a value system because it was very clear to me that the way that my family had done it in our sort of semi-detached house in Sheffield, England, was totally different to the way that my friends would do it in Arusha, Tanzania, or my friends in Den Haag in the Netherlands, or my friends in Singapore, whatever it might be, and that there's no wrong and there's no right and that there's wide, wide variety of approaches, even within those sort of microcultures. So I guess you get to a point where there's no status quo anymore. Everybody's an individual who's trying to figure it out themselves and trying to do the best for, for the people that they care about. So there was nothing that smacked me around the face. Mm. And then the reality of Singapore, which is, which is such a wonderful feature of Singapore, is that it's very diverse, as per London, as per Toronto, as per many places in the world, that you're so fortunate to be able to spend time with all sorts of different people from all sorts of different cultures and different mindsets and different approaches and to learn from them. The one thing that maybe I can point to is that myself and my wife thought when we had children that we would have a certain method around things like sleeping. Mm. It's really important that children have a structure and they sleep by this structure. And it's really important that they have their own bedroom and that people are not in shared bedrooms together. And it was only by having children and then going through the process of sleep training and thinking about it that you start second-guessing some of those assumptions and exploring different ways of doing it. And then we read so much about it and talked about it and thought about it and realized putting children in their own bedroom and putting them on a strict sleep schedule is a very, at least to my understanding, Western construct. And for example, that doesn't happen in Africa. The whole family sleeps in the same room. Yeah. And that's super beneficial because it creates safety and it creates comfort and it removes trauma. And many of the ways that we have sort of thought about is this is how it's done actually create some level of minor trauma for the child. Yes. And so there's a question around, is that a good thing or a bad thing? But if you believe that the trauma is a bad thing, then you shouldn't do it. So some of those pre-held opinions around how we might sort of get our children into a state of effective sleeping were maybe not the right way to approach it. 
we've been back and forth on that. So what does the sleeping arrangements look like for your children? So they have separate rooms. Okay. And we have experimented with having them in the same room and having them in separate rooms and had them in our room. Now we're at a place where they have separate rooms. And it's only very recently that I feel that we are getting close to having cracked it. Mm. But as you will know, with a young child, then you will crack sleeping for about a month and then there'll be an enormous regression and it will all go wrong. Yep. So who knows when we will genuinely crack it. We can see the incremental steps forward in both children. And that's good, at least for now, fingers crossed. That's wonderful. And that idea of figuring out what works, experimenting, testing it out, and then now running another experiment. So hopefully that works out and then the results are positive. <laughs> if anyone is struggling with sleep training, then I think the most important thing that we have realized is to do two things. One is our children have a bath before they go to bed, is to get the bath to into bed that is 30 minutes and no longer. Mm. And there's no playing after the bath. So the bath becomes a part of the process and then we're in the bedroom and then we're reading books and, yep. and then we're brushing teeth and we're getting ready, but it all happens reasonably quickly and no deviation. Because I think one of the key bits and the second one is that 30 minute period is designated wind down time. Yep. So it's very important that there's no wind up time. Mm. And sometimes daddy is the one who messes that up. <laughs> <laughs> because you want to spend time with them after a long day at work. Exactly, exactly. Got it. So Simon, also at the start of this conversation, you talked about you are introvert that has to be an extrovert. And I think one of the challenges of being an introvert is interacting and talking with people, which is probably what you do for a big part of your day. It does become tiring, such that by the time it comes to the end of the day, I myself find it sometimes hard to hold conversations, sustain conversations with my wife, with my children, or even play with them. How does that look like for you? And what have you found to work in terms of that energy management? Yeah, I totally empathize with that. And it's in the moment I find that mentally tough because lacking energy to engage the three people who mean more to you than anyone else, in my case, yep. that's difficult. And then there's this mental juxtaposition where you put side by side the people that you care more about and the energy they're getting. And some of the things that you've invested energy in that day, mm. some of which inevitably always was so much lower in value. And you might not know that going into it, but you certainly know it retrospectively. So I struggle with that a little bit. I believe in trying to create separation. So almost in the same way that some people, even though they don't necessarily commute to work, particularly now, like, sort of post-COVID, people working at home, people like to create a little commute where they walk for 20 minutes mm. from their house back to their house. And now they're working and same in the evening. And I find that valuable from a work perspective, but I also find that valuable to create the separation between the energy sapping that might have gone on during the day and then investing into my family in the evening. So if I can break the sort of pre-family time by going for a walk or going on my paddleboard or going for a swim or something like that, or even for me, something that is really energy giving is to sit and listen to music. Mm. So if I can stop, I think it's just mental stop for a period of time. It's almost like with the phone. I don't know what the numbers are, but takes you two hours to get to 100% charge, but it takes you 10 minutes to get to 25. Yeah. So something like that, I think is a useful way to do it. But then also you can plan your day maybe a step further. And maybe this is not always possible for everybody in all roles. But if you plan your day such that you say, what are the three things I most want to invest my time in? And one of them is that period in the evening or the morning or whatever it might be with my family. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I can't overburden myself prior to that. So that means that there can only be two other gold star things in my day. And if there's a third one, it has to go. And it has to be prioritized and it has to be kicked out. 
sometimes it's useful to have others to help you to do that. Because sometimes that you think you might be a superman or a superwoman, be able to do everything in the calendar in one day. And of course, it's not possible. Yeah, got to carve that out. And I like the idea of taking a walk, almost forcing yourself to have the commute and that clean break so that you are switching, almost contact switching. And you know that, okay, it's time to work or it's time for the family. Something I do is actually combine the two. So combine mm. the getting the energy with the being with the children. So for example, I'll put music on with my children. And I was going to say dance. We don't dance. I pick them up and jump around the room. and They love it because we're jumping nice. around the room. And that creates energy in the room, but it also creates some energy in me. And it also creates an enjoyable moment for both of us. So stuff like that can be really useful. Awesome. I got to ask, there's a part where you mentioned about paddleboard. Tell me a bit more, brother. Where do you paddleboard? It sounds like something that it's common outside of Singapore, but in Singapore, it's at least the first that I've heard. <laughs> I think it's reasonably common. Okay. So I used to live on the East Coast before COVID and before Western Australia was locked down. Then that we'll spend time when we go on holiday, we'll go to Western Australia. I would go and paddleboard there and I would paddleboard on the East Coast. We now live in Sentosa, so super useful and super easy for us to go paddleboarding. And that's really, really enjoyable. So East Coast and Sentosa is where I do it. Nice. And you tend to see a few people out and about. There's a few beach clubs in Sentosa and the East Coast where you can go and hire paddleboards and go out. So I like to do that. It's a nice thing to do with the children. The youngest one's a bit young for that at the moment. Yeah, but I think soon enough, she will be able to enjoy that. This has been a really enjoyable conversation, Samuel. If we have to wrap it up and there's one lesson you learned as a parent in tech, what would that be? I'd say it's the, the thing we were talking about earlier around deep work and space. Mm -hmm. It's the battle that you will inevitably face once you have children to be able to deeply engage with whatever it is that you're passionate about in life outside of your children and with children and to think thoughtfully about that. The lesson is to think thoughtfully around how you will create space for your children and for the other things that matter and to recognize even once you've thought thoughtfully about it, that it will not be right and that it will be frustrating. And so to go into that with a mindset of this will be frustrating and I will be constantly learning. And I guess that feeds into a mindset, which mm. is to always get in the game. So something, a mental frame, it's just glass half full thinking. Yes. But if you think about getting in the game with any moment of adversity, I fortunately found myself in a place now, and maybe it's the benefit of having had children, but I enjoy adversity so much these days because whenever I'm in that friction point, that adversity, I know that I'm winning. I know that I'm learning. And whenever I'm failing on supporting my children, I know that I'm becoming a better parent. And that's great because we are these tiny, tiny pieces in this enormous world today and the world in the moment today and in our lifetime is like of such negligible importance versus the world over its entire existence. So we're effectively inconsequential. And so all we can do is get in the gain about how we are contributing to move everything forward. And that in a very personal level is about how we're moving ourselves forward and how we're moving our families forward. If we're constantly learning and constantly improving, then we will be constantly facing adversity. So the lesson is enjoy the adversity because you're becoming a better parent. That's golden advice. I really love that to embrace the challenges, embrace the adversity and know that that's shaping and molding you. Thanks for that, Samuel. So if the parents who are listening would love to connect with you, how can they best do so? They can find me at samalhall.com. They can find me on LinkedIn, Samuel Hall. They can find me on Twitter. I think I'm at samalhall on Twitter. And if they search for me on Spotify, they will find that Johnny Cash has written a song about it. So they can listen to that too. 
Wow. Okay, that's fascinating. I'll definitely do that. <laughs> Thank you so much, Simon, for joining us on Parents in Tech. It's such a joy to talk to you. Total pleasure. Thank you so much for hosting me. It's been really, really interesting discussion. Thanks for listening to the Parents in Tech podcast with me, your host, Tsingen. We hope you were inspired on how to raise kids and build companies. To catch up on earlier episodes or stay updated with upcoming ones, head over to www.parents.fm to join our community of parents in tech. There, you can also drop me a question, idea, feedback, or suggestion. Once again, the website is www.parents.fm. That's all for this episode, folks. See you next time.